Hey everyone, and welcome to this special Soapbox edition of the Risky Business Podcast. My name's Patrick Gray. For those of you who don't already know, these Soapbox podcasts or specials, uh, they're wholly sponsored, and that means everyone you hear in one of these podcasts paid to be here. But if you're a regular listener, you'd also know that we tend to pick sponsors who we can have interesting conversations with. And uh, yeah, if you work in vulnerability management, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. I hope so. Anyway, so today we're chatting with Scott Kufer, who is a founder of Nucleus Security. Nucleus makes a platform that normalizes the outputs of all of your vuln scanning technology. Uh, They put it all in one place and they help you do things better, right? Like triage, ticketing, that sort of stuff. So they help you manage all of this information. Now, one thing I really like about Scott is he'll never tell you that this vulnerability management problem can just be solved and be rendered really simple if you buy his product. Uh, The fact is that, yes, agile, medium-sized companies, they can get up and running with Nucleus pretty easily. But if you're a large, large enterprise, and Nucleus has a couple of these like global mega corporations as customers, you'll have had to have done some real work before you'll be able to get a real benefit out of uh, out of tools like Nucleus to, to solve some of these problems. Now, on the topic of that sort of work, uh, funnily enough, a lot of the policy work that's going into fixing this stuff or you know, trying to get more systemic in the approaches to this sort of stuff, a lot of that work is actually coming out of the US federal government because unlike the private sector, the federal government uh, in the United States has a national security mandate. They look at the vulnerability management uh, challenge a little bit differently because they have uh, uh, different incentives, basically. Now, one thing that CISA has got behind recently, uh, and that's one of the things I'm going to talk about with Scott, is called SSVC, which is Stakeholder Specific Vulnerability categorization. Uh, So we're going to talk to Scott about SSVC, uh, about the challenges of trying to understand which vulnerabilities organizations need to urgently address, uh, and just, you know, talk about vulnerability management at scale generally. Uh, So I do hope you enjoy this conversation. Here's Scott Kufer. So the SSVC is the idea that you want to tie specific attributes about vulnerabilities to specific outcomes. So rather than saying, hey, this is a 7.8 and this other one's a 7.9, What's the difference? What do we do? Is this like, do we need to fix the 7.9 more than the 7.8? You don't really know, right? Depending on, it's very contextual to the situation. So SSVC at its core would say, let's say we break vulnerabilities into four categories. These categories could be whatever you want, but for the sake of simplicity, emergency patch, elevated priority, normal patch cycle, risk acceptance. Those are your four categories. And then you basically take a bunch of vulnerability and asset attributes And you combine those together into something that they call decision trees, which you can think of as just queries. So an example would be a vulnerability on a public-facing asset that's business critical, that is currently being exploited by APTs, that we know (laughs) relates to malware. I think a bunch of listeners just had a heart attack then when you said those words out loud. But anyway, go on. Right. So being able to detect that and say, oh, no, we should probably go do something about that, that, that equates to an emergency patch. And maybe if all of that is true, but it's on an internally facing asset, that just means it's elevated priority. And then now we got we have outcomes associated with attributes rather than just saying, well, let's boil this all down to a score and then just start working working down the list. It's like, okay, we know that, hey, if I get a JIRA ticket and it's this elevated priority, there's a flag I can throw that says, hey, drop everything that you're doing and go and fix it. And and that's at least a starting point to being able to figure out what you want to address. It's, it's a way of prioritizing and thinking about vulnerabilities. That's not just like, hey, CVSS said it's seven. You know, Kenna said it's a 750. <laughs> Tenable VPR said it's a 9.8. CrowdStrike says it's a 7.7. Like, what, is, what do all these mean? It doesn't really matter. All that matters is 
the the ground truth facts of the vulnerabilities. And that's what I it's mean. I'm gonna to I'm gonna channel a little bit of Adam Boileau now and say yeah. that like this sounds great, but sure. the problem is there are a lot of organizations that aren't really in a great position to even understand the context around these things and to really understand yep. their environment such that they can make a determination. So like how much work, and, and this is a CISA mm -hmm. thing, right? That is, well, it's it's technically the Carnegie Mellon uh, Software Engineering Institute that built it. And then they did it in partnership with CISA and then CISA okay. took it and said, we want to do it. Okay. Okay. So like how much work have they put into making it friendly for organizations that might not have as much situational awareness as we would yeah. like. Just a real quick example is like, you know, the big Java bug, uh, uh, Log4j, right? Yep. The Log4 shell bug, right? There might've been a bunch yeah. of organizations that like, had they worked through these decision trees, knowing that they had a Log4 shell vulnerable library used in a business critical thing, like, but they, they didn't know. Do you know what I mean? They they didn't oh, yeah. know that they were using it. And that's just like one example of mm -hmm. of what I mean when I say like people being unaware of of their own environments and and being able yep. to actually understand the context of of these bugs. But go on. Oh, hundred percent. And this is I would say, and th and this is uh, this is Scott speaking. This isn't necessarily Nucleus speaking now. But uh, when the way I think about the biggest challenges that we have in the VM space are actually just execution and implementation. We have a ton of theories. We have a ton of great theoretical frameworks to execute on things. But the reality is, is that this stuff is just really hard to do at scale, right? I mean, you only have so many people. The reality is, is that for every 10 vulnerabilities that come in, you can fix one, right? And so what's the one that you're going to fix? And so it's like, when you think about the root issues, you have two, you have two solutions, right? I can either increase the overall velocity and fix two or three or four out of every 10, or I can just make damn well sure that that first vulnerability I fix is the exact right vulnerability to get fixed because that's what I can do. And so all of these frameworks are designed to do that, right? EPSS is a good example. The CISA list is another good example, right? So the Well, it's another okay it, example. Let's not it's get an okay away. <laughs> yeah, well, that's another example of people trying to, right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I mean, they describe uh, Kev describes themselves as the authoritative vulnerability exploitation, you know, or vulnerabilities being exploited in the wild list. And so it's like, okay, well, Mandiant says that they have one of those. Recorded Future says that they have one of those. And it's like, yeah. you know, it's so, so it all gets very mushy. And, and but this is point, kind of what yeah. I mean about how that, that idea that, you yes. know, context is something that you can just, you know, put a bunch of really simple, easy to collect data into a decision tree and it shits yeah. out the perfect result. Like that, that sounds great, but I'm, yeah. you know, I'm just a bit skeptical. That's all. So that's why I'm asking agree. you, yeah. like how, how effective do you think this can be because yes. i'd imagine at some organizations it will be quite effective but they're the ones who are already wired up pretty well to begin with right yeah i think this goes back to where nucleus sees itself right and this is why uh we've continued to see growth in these all these different times where a lot of folks are having having a hard time is because the way that we see ourselves is being that centralized place where all the data just you just dump all the data into that you do have not everybody is not all data is created equal but the data that you do have is all useful and i did a i did a, a master's thesis on this many years ago where it was like i tried my, my whole thesis was to try to replace cvss because i was like cvss is garbage we need something else and then so I when you were a young idealistic grad <laughs> student yeah exactly. no i, I guess, <laughs> you're and, like i'm gonna fix it right and then yes. yeah i'm guessing you didn't actually fix it scott I got, oh, I mean, well, I wouldn't be working here if I did. You know, I got slapped <laughs> in the face with a little dose of the reality fish. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, nice. 
But what I realized at the time <laughs> was that CVSS is actually has been executed very well. It's just it's because it's easy to use. But the reality is, is that all the data people need to make the decision is a it's there. It's just really hard to collect and make sense of. So, like, for example, everybody is not everybody, but a lot of people are using phishing assessments as, you know, like no before proof point, those kinds of things. Right. Then you've got companies that have tools like Rumble. They've got uh, asset inventory that maybe is half complete in a ServiceNow CMDB. And then they're, they're, they've got for each team, each product team has their own asset inventory or GitHub repositories that they're using. And it's all there. It's just really hard to go find and go get. And so what we realized, our value proposition really quickly was, hey, we've normalized all this vulnerability data, but like we don't know what the heck it means, right? Like it's almost irrelevant if you have all this data in one spot, if you don't know like why, why it is there. Uh, so that's why we partnered with Mandy, and I think we actually launched that here uh, on the podcast. Yeah, 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 we spoke about that. That was a while ago now. Yes, it was. I was over, over a year ago now. But the idea from that was, hey, not everybody has threat vulnerability intelligence because they don't actually know what it means and nobody's made the investment, um, or very few folks had. And so we said, this is all context that we can give you without having to actually collect any of your own data. And so it's no, not I great, think, but look, it's I, I, I think I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go along with what you're saying and say that that is something that is extremely valuable that you get, um, you know, with your product. I'm sure there's others that do it. Yep. I'm sure that some of the Vuln scanners, like if you just want to stick in a single ecosystem, they're yep. going to give you some, some of that context as well. But being able to get it across all of your different scanners and whatnot, yeah, it's very useful when you've got a flag that might say this bug is on the Sisakev list. It's also on the Mandiant list. It's also on this list. You know, like that's a that's a sign that something is flashing red. And, yeah. you know, if you've then got access to your uh, asset discovery data, you know, in yeah. the same place, and you can say, well, is this a business critical production resource? Like, you know, you're chipping away at that problem for sure, right? I guess yep. my point is like, not every org is going to be able to to even get into a position where they can use you you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. I, I, I feel yeah. like Nucleus is a solution for people who've already gone fairly a long way along the vulnerability uh, management path. And they're yeah. like, oh, wow, we'd really benefit from this tool because like it's the next step in our maturity. Whereas there's, you know, when you look at the average, you know, government agency in the US government, sure. they're not, they're probably not even ready to be, uh, you know, a lot of them would not be ready to be your customers yet, right? And And we've actually seen that uh, play out just just that way, right? There's sort of when you look at the different customers that we have, we've got some folks that are call them the mid market smaller customers that they know that they they have a long way to go and they don't want to hire somebody, so they just they implement a nucleus, they do it really quickly, and then they get what they want out of it. It's a little decision making engine for them, you know, triage analysis, yada yada, and then it just ships tickets off to the right folks, right? And that was who we originally were like, hey, this is going to be great. It's going to be easy. Just we'll just sell it all to the SMBs and it'll be an awesome time. But then. What happened really quickly was we had these big enterprises that had tried this for years and pretty much every yeah, they, time we get brought in. That's kind of what, what, yeah. what I was getting at. They got to the point in their maturity where they were like ready to do this thing and tried to do it themselves and, 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 and kind of couldn't. But like even getting to the point where you want to try something like this, like you're fairly a long way down the road already, right? Or, or they think they're a lot further down the road than they actually are, <laughs> which I think yeah. is more, more likely. Uh, we've learned a lot, that's what I'll say, in uh, in our implementations that we've done over the years. But there actually have been a few patterns which are really interesting. And what we found is that companies that really have embraced like agile development principles actually have a lot easier time adapting to this yeah. new way of thinking. Because really, when you think about it, there's a the vulnerability debt problem, right? It's like, hey, we can only fix 20% of everything that comes in. 
you know, maybe the vulnerabilities don't mean anything now, but what happens when, you know, they do mean something 10 years from now, right? Like we're just not going to write these vulnerabilities off forever. So there's a payback period we're going to have at some point. So when we're looking at the, uh, the organizations that tend to have more success at, in uh, embracing a new model like this are ones that have already embraced the agile development ideas of, you know, like the tribes, all of the product teams owning their own stuff and having everything integrated together. Because actually what ends up happening is that you have to pay back this vulnerability debt at some point, right? Because again, a vulnerability might not mean something today, but 10 years from now, it could be a much bigger problem because now it's a 10 year old vulnerability, right? And so because the, just because of the way exploits work and the way attackers are always moving. So what we're seeing is that it's a lot easier to embed security into the source that's generating the vulnerabilities and have them own their own vulnerabilities as opposed to having the monolithic uh, centralized security team who's responsible to fix vulnerabilities, but they don't actually have authority to fix vulnerabilities. All they can really do is send reports and point fingers and say, you're not <laughs> doing a good job or, you know, team A is awesome. Team B, not so good. We're going to have a pizza party for these people. You know, it's like, what, what motivations do you really have? And so when you combine that with the fact that it's now a board level issue and you have to report it at the board, somebody's head is on the line and they need to be able to know that you actually can delegate the authority to fix things and encourage your product teams. And that's just a tough thing to do, especially in an old school waterfall environment or uh, organizations that are having a hard time getting their organization to uh, embrace change and author authorities and democratization of, of authority. I can, I can imagine you would have at least experienced the situation where some well-intentioned person has brought you in and your instance has been a ghost town because no one wanted to play, right? Like, because that's, you know, when you've got a dysfunctional organization, yep. like a tool's just not going to fix it. I think that's kind of what you're getting at, right? That's exactly what I'm getting at. And one of the things that, that we've always had to do, I think I preach this from day one, is that we have to actually come in and be a a consultant to a lot of in a lot of ways i mean we're partnering with mm. deloitte now we have special programs where we work with some of these bigger vendors uh guidepoint deloitte's uh and some others internationally orange cyber defense to actually be the folks that can come in and help guide you from a programmatic perspective because obviously just myself and and my team aren't going to scale uh to the number of customers that we have to be able to, to do that and so we've been very fortunate to partner with with folks that really know what they're doing and have worked in this space for a long time but yeah, if you have a dysfunctional organization, it's just 10 times harder, right? I mean, we shine a light on a lot of really bad stuff really quick. And you can look at that either positively or you can look at that negatively. The positive stuff is, ooh, we know a bunch of stuff that we didn't know before and we can go fix it. And it's all prioritized for us. Yes, we have our input. We have our backlog that's prioritized. Everything's like super simple. Now we just got to go execute. Or you can look at it as, oh, well, we've been telling the board that we have X number of vulnerabilities. And now we've realized we have 30 times the number of vulnerabilities that we thought we did. And so somebody is is going to get fired. And that's just an unhealthy environment. And um, we're fortunate that we don't have to work with many companies like that. Uh, most of our organizations are trying yeah. to, to fix. But yeah, I it's mean, definitely I'm just, a I'm just, This is spinning me out because this is almost like a time warp conversation. Like you and I were chatting before we got recording and I was talking yeah. about how Tenable was one of the first sponsors of Risky Business, like all the way back in like 07. I think they had like 20 or 40 staff, like they were babby, babby, yeah. babby startup. And I remember when, you know, before Vuln scanning was a big market, it wasn't something that every corporate did or every government agency did or whatever. But you know, what you're talking about is the way that they used to talk about their products early yeah. on, which is that first scan. So that was how they'd get their sales, right? Is they would go in and they'd do their first scan and they would show people, you know, a box of horrors that would make them 
like their jaws hit the hit the boardroom tables, right? And that was how they got right. their sales. And it sounds like, you know, we're kind of back to that position, right? Where you as nucleus come in, kind of do the same thing. Like, is that is that sort of how you wind up getting entrenched at a, at a customer as you do that initial thing and and freak them out? Uh, yes, very much so to the point where uh, it's, it's awe-inspiring on one hand because we get to just a first meeting and we go and we do a demo and to see the light bulbs go off is obviously, you know, it, it's like kind of like pulling that slot machine handle, right? Uh, can't get enough of, of seeing uh, all the hard work that we've poured into this, right? Because we poured our heart, heart, soul and experience and everything into it. To, so when, when people immediately grasp onto it and go, oh man, I really, I really need that. Uh, it's so, awesome. so how do you do that? How, how do you demo that? Do you just go to the Volan teams and like get a few sample reports and then like feed them in and, and, and do the nucleus thing or like, how does yeah. that work? So the funny part is we don't even need to use their own data for them to get it. But when you f- first go into a POV and you do that first, you, and you know, cause we normally say, Hey, let's set up a connector because if you set up a, a connector rather than like a manual file upload, uh, what you, we get, we bring in a whole bunch of additional context with it. So it's not just the vulnerability data. And then we're able to say, Oh, well, can we make some assumptions about who owns this vulnerability? Uh, hey, you have five, you know, five million vulnerabilities. We've determined that there are nine that you really need to, to focus on. And then they go look at it and they look with their teams and they're like, oh, crap. Yeah, we definitely need to go fix that. Okay, and- so that's interesting. That's progress because 20 years ago it was like, oh, my God, look at the output of this scan. And now it's like people are desensitized to the fact that they have millions of vulnerabilities and they're excited by the fact that you can tell them that there's like five that they need to worry about. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's it's a real thing, right? It's like there's actually been a bar set where it's like, hey, it's okay to have five million open vulnerabilities as long as that number, ah. uh, yeah, as long as the number of the thing that we have deemed is the most you know critical category of vulnerabilities is not going up, right? Like maybe it's critical exploitable because we're using CVSS scoring. So as long as we have our cr- number of critical exploitable vulnerabilities staying flat or going down, we're happy, even if the number of overall vulnerabilities is going up. Right. And that's that's the reality of the of the world that we live in. And so it's equally terrifying because sometimes I still say, you know, I I stay up at night going, well, what happens, you know, 10 years from now if we're just continuously adding more and more vulnerabilities into the system? Right. Where there's more vulnerabilities all the time, there's more assets and more spread coming all the time. And we're just not really doing anything to fix it. And so I, you know, kind of think about it a little bit like an economy to a degree. Right. Like what happens when you have inflation? Same type of deal. Right. Where it's like, well, what happens if you're increasing your number of vulnerabilities 7 or 8%. Maybe it's not a big deal, but you know, over the course of 5 years, 10 years, 12 years, what does that actually mean uh, to yeah. organizations? Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. And I, I would think crime is a better... Um, crime. Crime yeah. is a better metaphor, right? Because you can't eradicate it, but you can kind of keep it roughly under control, <laughs> depending on where you are in the world, um, yeah. for sure. But, you know... That's why you're the pro. <laughs> you come up with the good metaphors. So... You know, SS, SSVC, you have, a, you have a, uh, a sneaking suspicion that this sort of thing is going to wind up finding its way into a binding directive, right? So organizations, you know, in, in government at least, are going to be forced to implement this sort of thing. Do you think that's, that's achievable? Like, you know, uh, how are they going to go actually implementing this thing? I, I definitely do believe that it will be something that makes it into a binding operational directive. And I also believe that uh, the FedRAMP initiative is also going to implement something similar because they already force 
continuous vulnerability monitoring that you have to report on aren't monthly. They, aren't they blowing up FedRAMP and basically doing it again? Because I did they, see something in like the the like you know defense appropriations bill or something. There is some FedRAMP yep. related stuff in there where they they're like FedRAMP obviously sucks. We're going to fix it. Here's twenty million designed yeah. to do that or something. Yeah, what they're what they're really planning to do is to make it easier to achieve FedRAMP authorization. So the yeah. government has determined that hey. Maybe only having 200 vendors or 300 vendors that we can buy from as a as a, an entire country is probably not the right move, and so they're trying to make the the barrier to entry lower, uh, which is good for uh, some companies, you know, and le- leveling the playing field. It's not so good for the entrenched uh, the entrenched companies that have built their entire that businesses around federal. actually spent the time and money to get on FedRAMP. Yeah. Right, and um, yeah, that's definitely not a shout out to us at all uh, who have done that. <laughs> they're going to be affected by it, but uh, I think it's great, right, that they're that they're doing that because. There's such a, and, and we're seeing this with some uh, industries too, where there's just, there's such a push against cloud where they're like, well, we don't want our vulnerability data to be put in a specific cloud environment, even if it's dedicated and locked down and nobody can access it. And then you're like, well, okay, so where's all your, all the rest of your data? It's like, well, it's, you know, at, on home networks and wherever. <laughs> and so it's like the government has, has, you know, they do some things all right. They they at least think about, you know, what they're trying to accomplish. And so I, I think that's really what they're trying to do is is make it more achievable, but then also put guidelines and accountability in that you can actually report on and measure so that they can really see what the risk of, of these SaaS services are. Yeah. Now, back to SSVC. So yep. I think the question that I'm most curious about and is this- like, to what degree do you think if this lands as a binding directive, people mm-hmm. will actually be able to comply with it? Because I feel yeah. like I feel like the stuff around asset discovery is actually kind of reasonable. Like it feels like yep. it was written with Rumble in mind. I'm gonna be honest. Like, uh, I mean, you know, it is HD. You might know some people. Well, it's essentially a binding directive that says go do a Rumble scan of your network and submit right. the results here. I think the the tie in with okay once you've done your asset discovery do the phone scans make sure everything's covered and then submit that to you know this government agency right like yep. that's all reasonable stuff and it's it doesn't require that understanding of context it doesn't require that that deep sort of understanding of of risk which is very hard to get a hold of right sure. so that's why i'm i'm kind of curious when this ssvc stuff lands if it mm-hmm. lands do you think it will be achievable in the same way that the current binding directive is? Because I'm a little yeah. bit skeptical, I've got to be honest. But I haven't yeah. looked at SSVC, you have, so you tell me. I believe that I believe that it is, but it's, like, it's not going to be any harder than actually doing vul- the vulnerability management process, right? So the hardest part of it is going to be setting up the foundations that you have to do anyway. The SSVC part is actually just a an additional step on top of what they would already have to do. And... I, do I think that's an insurmountable challenge? No. Do I think it's really hard? Yes. Uh, they are definitely going to struggle with it. And this is where, honestly, like a, a tool like Nucleus, that's that's where we're that's where we excel, right? I mean, I, we I exist think there is a bit of a disconnect in, in what you're saying and what I'm saying. Yeah. Right? And, I, and I I want to explain where I'm coming from because sure. I, I definitely see where you're coming from with this. Mm-hmm. But where I'm coming from with it is, I don't think a if you keep the decision tree simple enough, if you keep mm-hmm. the inputs into the decision tree simple sure. enough. You know, that's going to get you somewhere, right? Um, mm-hmm. I guess my issue with stuff like SSVC, even though I haven't really looked at it in detail, yeah. is there's going to be a lot of stuff missing from their inputs that actually is quite relevant to risk. That's all. That's all I mean. Same oh, as CVSS, absolutely. same as CV, you know, like same yeah. as all of, the, all of the other stuff. Yeah, and again, it's all about how you implement it, right? I mean, all these things sound great in theory, but I mean, like even CVSS, right? CVSS version 4 is actually not bad in theory, but... Uh, it's it's the actually going in and doing it is really hard to do. And 
Uh, yeah, no, that's a that's a big big challenge. But I mean, government gets off on that kind of thing, right? They've got compliance people for days. They like they have there's a whole system in place to force people to force is the wrong word to uh, encourage compliance with the uh, recommended compliance frameworks. And so there's entire contracts that are given out just for that. Uh, so if anybody can do it, uh, it would be the government, <laughs> to be honest. But you know, you know, I just I just realized something interesting here, which is that the bulk of your business is not government; it's it is commercial, not. it's corporate, yep. right? And and what I find really interesting is that you know this is the second time we've spoken to someone from Nucleus, and we're talking about U.S. government stuff, and I think that's actually quite you know we got to give them credit. The fact that they're kind of leading the conversation on this stuff is is somewhat unexpected, right? It's wild, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's hilarious because you know you people might th- be listening to this thinking, oh, you know, nucleus must do all this government business, and and you yeah. don't. But it's it's very interesting that you're looking at, at what they're doing and going, okay, well, this is worth talking about. This is you know they're trying to do something interesting here that perhaps the the private sector can learn from. And normally it's the other way around. It definitely is. Like I I had a friend who in 2015 2016 was asked by uh, somebody one of his com- you know companions in the federal government what a, what a container was. It, like had we heard about this container thing. And if we could look into it, and and so that I think is a good example of what of what I think everybody thinks of the government, but I mean I mean you had uh, you've had you I mean you've had some close relationships with with some folks in the U.S. government of late too, right? Like previous CISA directors and whatnot, and like they've been bringing some good folks in to kind of manage the direction of uh, major cybersecurity policy, and so I think that's actually starting to take shape, right? Like I mean I'm I'm pretty good friends with. Uh, some CISOs inside of the federal government that came from private sector that were what I would consider high value CISOs inside the private sector. And they were able to poach them and convince them that a public sector job was better than, you know, do uh, it for uh, your country. (laughs) That's right. right? It's better than nine months in a, you know, (laughs) in a, in a company and then getting all the blame for when you get attacked. But Hey, um, so, um, yeah, yeah. this this way you get to, you get to get questioned by Congress so much better. It's so so much much better. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And then you get to do all, uh, you get all, all of your emails are for you. Uh, available. So yeah, exactly right. But but like I, I think what really CIS's approach to a degree uh, seems to be throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall to see what sticks, right? And it does come across that way. Yeah, a little bit. It does, but I mean, some of it will stick, right? So at least it's an approach that's going to bear some fruit eventually. You'd think. You you would think so, right? But that's I mean, there was something that I heard the other day that I think is pretty poignant to this conversation, actually. Which is the like the reason that the government is here is to make those investments that are long term bets that don't necessarily have a short term payoff, but are like kind of what they perceive as for the good of of everybody. And so this is one so of those. So to a degree, it's a type of it's a type of standardization and 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 you know rules based mandates and stuff that isn't really achievable elsewhere. Like you know, can you imagine the reaction? If the if it was the SEC mandating yeah. this sort of stuff for the private sector, right? Like you'd have um, all of the lobbyists some... screaming about communism. We'd have we'd have a hard time. Um, yeah, I mean, like <laughs> yeah. talk about literally everybody being out of compliance. Uh, there's there's some hope. There's actually like probably I would say out of the top Fortune 500, there's probably about five that I think would would be able to achieve it. But you know that's not a great percentage. And, uh, but you everybody see my point, help. right? Which yeah. is that, which is that in this case, the government's doing something that just you know it, it you just can't really do it in the in the private sector. I mean, other countries might be able to. Like I'm thinking places like Singapore, even Australia, right? Yep. But um, certainly not in the United States, where yeah. the free market rules all. But at the same time, you look at the incentive structure of cybersecurity programs in corporate environments, and it's just it's just not aligned with with getting vulnerabilities fixed. I mean, 
it's aligned Whereas with doing there is a national management. security imperative in, in US government right? exactly right so even like when we look at our main our main markets I mean we get a huge amount of inbound traffic right like I mean to this day we're our the majority of our business is driven just from like people that have a requirement and they need to solve this problem and they can't figure out how to do it and they come to us and it's you know energy finance uh things like utilities things the like regulated logistics, industries, yeah right a lot <laughs> of places that that had that they need that type of type of stuff right and um, it's it's been fascinating to see, and I do think that there is a push. Like like we're starting to see titles pop up around like you know senior director of vulnerability management or VP of vulnerability management. Like it's starting to become a thing that is taking a life of its own. But still, I mean the the term vulnerability management has been co opted by uh you know by the by the scanning tools to the point where even ChatGPT is confused about the difference between vulnerability. Oh man, I asked it to explain U2F authentication to me, and I wound <laughs> up telling it like just you no. You're wrong, you know, and then it gave me the right answer, but it's, oh God, that thing's terrible. If anybody's interested, it's it's actually kind of fascinating to just, uh, you know, ask ChatGPT the difference between Tenable and Nucleus, because if you look at the ChatGPT response, it's like, oh yeah, they're the same and uh, enjoy, but it's it's all up to you guys what you want to do. Uh, so I think that's pretty representative of the market uh, still up to this to this point. Chat GPT is a reflection of uh, the the world's understanding, which that's can be quite <laughs> depressing sometimes, can't it? Yes, yeah. uh, humanity. Well, yeah, and it is it is interesting that we've got to a point. I think early on when Vuln scanners first popped up, and then you had all of the orchestration vendors coming yes. along afterwards saying, hey, you know, patching all of this output from these scans, you know, it's obviously not manageable manually. So we can orchestrate this and make this problem go away. And I think we've really got to the point where we realize that's never going to solve the problem, right? And and that's really why not. it's become, you know, Vuln management has really become a risk discipline. And I think there's an acceptance that it's a risk discipline now. And that's the part that's new. I think it has been yeah. a risk discipline forever, but now we've got to the point where it's a problem that we're going to stop trying to solve through things like automation and orchestration. You can yeah. solve some of it that way, but you, you know, not all of it. No, Absolutely. Well, it. but the cool part about this, right, is it, it spawned its own new problems. So like there are situations, like we have a ton of automation built into Nucleus as an example, but we're not automating patches, right? Like we can already yeah. do that. We're automating like the, hey, this vulnerability comes in and we know everything about that vulnerability. So based on that, let's make a decision what to do with it. We can upgrade the risk. We can categorize it a certain way. We can assign it to somebody. If it's a, you know, Apache and it's on a critical business system that's a web server, then we know that it belongs to this team over there. But if it's, you know, whatever, call it an Oracle vulnerability on the same asset, same team, actually that goes to a database team. So it allows you to just really easily start doing, I mean, all of the, the grunt work that... I mean, vulnerability analysts do today, frankly. I mean, they spend most of their time in spreadsheets and uh, still, I mean, we talked about spreadsheet hell, what, three years ago, four years ago? Yeah. It's not changed. We're we're in a a new circle, a new circle, Patrick. All right. Well, Scott Kufa, always a pleasure to chat to you, my friend. Uh, Very interesting stuff. And uh, yeah, we'll do it again soon. Cool. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Patrick. That was Scott Kufa from Nucleus Security there. Big thanks to him for that. And uh, you can find Nucleus at NucleusSec.com. And that is it from me today. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.